This morning, uh, we are continuing a series that we've been in that we are calling Revelation in Red. And in this series, we're looking at Jesus' unique letters to seven unique churches in the first century uh, Roman province of Asia. And what we trust is that as we peer in on the words that Jesus wrote to these different churches, the Spirit will awaken the words Jesus might want to speak to our church, to our lives, generations and generations and miles and miles removed. And um, man, crazy to think, but this week we're in church number six. Next week we're going to take a break for Orphan Sunday, and then we're going to wrap the series up the next week um, on the 18th. But today we want to look at Jesus' words to the church in the city of Philadelphia, um, where I was born and raised and on the playground, spent most of my days um, chilling out, maxing. You pagans, not that Philadelphia, um, a different Philadelphia in the first century Roman province. And um, pretty cool place, uh, Philadelphia, uh, known for its grapes and Quakes. Um, quick side note, it was built on a fault, and as such, Philadelphia was very susceptible to the effects, the impact of earthquakes. As a matter of fact, in AD 17, they experienced quite the Quaker. It rattled the city, brought it to the grounds, buildings came down, temples came down. It was so bad that Tiberius, the emperor in Rome, actually signed a decree saying, those poor people do not have to pay taxes. It was that bad. Um, being very fertile, of course, in, in the valley in which it was built, it was incredibly known for its grape production. It was a very religious um, city, just like the other six cities that we've looked at and will look at in a couple of weeks. Very religious. In fact, it was known as the land of many temples. And uh, it should surprise no one uh, that the chief among all religions, the chief among all of their gods was the god or goddess Dionysus. Now the reason, if you know anything about Dionysus, Dionysus um, was the goddess of drink and ecstasy. So you've got to do something with all of that grape production, and these people knew how to party. Um, Philadelphia, like the other cities, was also very, very um, strong in imperial worship. If you lived in Philadelphia, you were obligated to pledge allegiance to the Roman um, emperor, to the Caesar. In fact, you were obligated to say the word, Caesar is Lord. Otherwise, you're on the outs with the political powers that be. Uh, Philadelphia had a large settlement of Jews, and as such, Judaism, uh, the national religion for the Jews, was very prevalent, very dominant. Again, this is a religion that says there is one and only one true God, and he is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And if you want to roll with him, then you've got to keep meticulously his 613 some odd laws. And there was a pretty significant movement of these Jews who would worship in their really fancy synagogue in that city. And it was in that space, in that world, that the church at Philadelphia lived. Um, the church at Philadelphia was super unimpressive 
to say the least. It was a really tiny movement of people, not very many of them. And truth be told, they had barely made any spiritual dent in their city. They had barely gotten any traction. They didn't have the story of revival and, and breakthrough. They didn't have large numbers coming um, to you know, attend their church services. They didn't have like a lot of people subscribing to their podcasts or anything like that. They were just a small movement who were largely irrelevant and largely insignificant. They just didn't have much momentum to claim. Um, so not relevant enough to make waves, but active enough to be targeted, and targeted they were. Um, as you can imagine, um, they were obligated to pledge allegiance to Caesar and to say Caesar is Lord. But this little movement may have been small, but they were mighty. They were faithful. They refused to back down. They refused to pledge allegiance. They said, we already have a Lord and his name is Jesus. We will not pledge allegiance to Caesar. So they were on the outs with the government in that time. Um, as far as Dionysus and the cults were concerned, they just refused to go along with popular culture and to party and get drunk and experiment sexually. They refused to be part of any of that. And so they were considered irrelevant. In fact, they were mocked constantly. Um, you know, if your God really loved you, why would he keep you from all of these delights and all of these pleasures? But the worst of the targeting, the worst of their persecution came at the hands of fellow Jews. The Jews hated that movement of Christians because a large portion of that small movement were Jews themselves. And for the Jews who practiced Judaism, this was the greatest form of ethnic and religious betrayal imaginable. We grew up in the same families. We grew up in the same community. You all know better. Ever since we were young, we were taught there is one and only one true God, and his name is Yahweh. And you all went and defected. You all went and betrayed him and followed after some nameless, you know, peasant carpenter who never even came into power. He was executed by the Romans on a cross. You are sellouts. And because of that, they were mocked and they were rejected. They were excluded. In fact, they were excommunicated from the synagogue. The chief priest signed something because he had the power to do that, kicking them out of the synagogue. You are not welcome to come and worship with us anymore. Do not let the door hit you on your way out. Please do not come back. They were kicked out, completely excluded. So life for that small movement of people in Philadelphia was not easy. It was painful. It was a life of rejection. It was a life of mockery. It was a life of being called irrelevant. It was a life of being considered spiritually inferior. And yet in all of that, as we'll see in this passage, they remained faithful to Jesus. They dialed up the volume on inviting people to life in Jesus. And they dialed up their refusal to go with popular culture and every other pressure in the day. And it's to them that Jesus pens the words that we're about to 
see. If you have a copy of the Bible, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we'll start reading at verse 7. If you don't have a copy, by the way, as you can see, um, a big iPad here will have the words. Um, if you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, by the way, we would love to get one into your hands. Just head to the connection corner at the end of the service, and uh, there'll be someone there um, very, very glad to give you a copy of the, the Bible, our gift to you. Um, again, um, heads up, so there is minimal whiplash, but we are going to just read through segments of this passage. We're going to pause, we're going to make observations, and we're going to continue to work our way through this um, section of Scripture that way. So, uh, Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Here's what Jesus says to this tiny targeted church. To the church, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. So Jesus doesn't even stretch. He doesn't even warm up. He launches right into the awesome. And he introduces himself to the Philly church as the holy and true. Fascinating. Now, holy would have been a word that meant set apart um, in a unique category all to yourself. And the Jews would have understood that to be the same term used to speak of the God of the Old Testament. Um, when he says, I'm true, that's just another way of saying, I am the genuine, I am the authentic, I am the real. How awesome is this a way for Jesus to introduce himself and start this letter to the Philadelphians? Hey, um, so some whispers have made their way up here to heaven. I've heard some things, people calling the gospel fake news, heard about this. People calling me a phony Messiah. I've heard every accusation leveled against you all because you've defected from the one true God. So can I just reintroduce myself? And in reintroducing myself, can I just reassure you that the one you have chosen to put your life on the line to follow is in fact the holy and the true. I am the real. I am God. I am the Messiah. And he reassures this little movement of people of who he is. By the way, which makes me want to pause and say, teenagers, can you hear me? Is this thing on? Um, I read this, and one of the first things that struck me is how amazing it is how often the majority can be wrong. I mean, can I just call you teenagers and invite you to become more and more obsessed with what is holy and true? Can I call you to be more obsessed with the one who is holy and true? I read this and it tripped me out because this whole city 
was convinced that this small, insignificant, irrelevant, spiritually inferior group of people had it wrong because narrow is the road that leads to life. And broad is the road with a bunch of people running down it that actually leads away from life. The majority of the city was wrong in their spiritual analysis because they misidentified Jesus. And yet this small, uncool, irrelevant group got it right. And when Jesus spoke, he set all things right. Can I just say, because I know there was a movement of who's cool and who has the largest following and what is the majority of everybody in our culture and popular culture and, and what do all of the kids at school and what is everybody else doing? And let this be a reminder that just because the majority moves in a direction does not make it right. The question is, have they identified Jesus accurately? And then Jesus calls himself the key holder. <laughs> he says, I hold the key of David. What I open, no one can shut, and what I shut, no one can open. The religious Jews would have understood the cross implication. David was the king of Israel, and as such, he had authority to make decisions about the kingdom. Jesus is the king of heaven and of earth. Do the math. Jesus is saying, I have the authority to make decisions about what happens in heaven and decisions about what happens on earth. If I say you can come in, then you can come in. And if I say you must get out, you don't have to go home. But I have the authority to grant or deny or restrict access both to heaven and on earth, both in heaven and on earth. You know by now, okay, maybe it's just me, but I assume this little church in Philadelphia is hooting and hollering in service. You kidding me? Because they understood what Jesus was doing by saying this to them. Oh, so anyway, uh, word um, has got up here to heaven that um, the chief priest apparently kicked you all out of the synagogue. Eh, ain't no thing. Just how Jesus speaks. Um, I heard they shut the door behind you and, and, and are not letting you back in. Anyway, I just wanted to say, jingle, jingle, I've got the master key. Guess what that means? If I wanted you in the synagogue, I'd open the door and no one would be able to shut it. If I wanted them out of the synagogue, I would close the door and no one would be able to let them back in. What could the chief priest do? I have the keys. Oh, this is so awesome because somebody has to know Jesus has the keys. If I wanted you in a different work situation... I've got the keys. I could open 
the door. If I didn't have my eternal reasons, I could have locked the door and kept your dad from leaving. I have the keys. And I have plans and purposes beyond your pain that you may not understand. And it may feel like, but we got rejected by our fellow. I've got the keys. And if I wanted a different government, come on, I've got the keys. I say who's in and I say who is out, both in heaven and on earth. If I still wanted those crazy people in your life, I've got the keys. Sometimes I spend so much time whining about the synagogues that I've been kicked out of. Sometimes I spend so much time dreaming about what could have been, what should have been, if this had, and maybe that, and Jesus just wants to, I've got the keys. And while I think I'd be so much better in that place or in that situation, he knows the plan. And so he locked the door because he has the keys. Come on, how many times have you tried to move out of Warsaw? And Jesus is like, jingle, jingle. I've got the keys. If I wanted to open that door, I would have. But for now, this is where I want you to be. Come on, how many of you, Grace was like the last school on your list? Jingle, jingle, here you are. Because he has got the keys. I've let you into doors you would never have knocked on, and I have kept you out of doors that would have killed you. That's why you've never been able to get back together with him. I've got the keys. I love this reminder for this small church. You've not been rejected. I've just left that door closed for you because of where it is that I want you to go. Where do you need to believe that Jesus has the keys? Speaking of open doors, Jesus goes on, verse 8. He says, I know your deeds. See? I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. I know. I know you're insignificant in the eyes of most. I know, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. That is interesting. I've placed in front of you an open door that no one can shut. Because again, I have the keys. Um, such a tough segment, by the way, of Scripture to interpret linguistically. What is Jesus saying? One interpretation, the most theologically comfortable one, is Jesus is speaking about heaven which makes sense and which would be so beautiful to this little movement in Philadelphia, that you've been excluded from every religious community. You've been excluded from popular culture. You've been told you don't belong. But jingle, jingle, can I just remind you, I've opened the door to heaven. You have a place to call your home. Heaven is yours. And I think that's obviously True. The challenge with that particular interpretation 
is they were already in as far as heaven was concerned. Jesus had already opened that door for them. The second option, I wonder if Jesus is speaking less about salvation and more about mission. You live in a city that is incredibly hostile to the gospel. You live in a city that calls you irrelevant and calls me phony. Watch what I'm about to do. I know you're small in number, and I know that ministry has felt like an uphill climb. I'm about to open a door for unprecedented mission impact for this little movement of my followers. I know it feels like you haven't made a dent. I know it feels like what you're doing sometimes doesn't matter. I'm about to open a door in the most hostile environment and see what I am about to do. I know you feel worn out, but I'm opening a door for unprecedented impact. I'm about to turn this city upside down. But the way I turn a city upside down, the way I turn a county upside down, the way I transform the world is through my people. So I'm opening a door for you to walk through, and your walkthrough will bring my breakthrough. The question is, are you willing to walk through the doors? But I'm opening them for you. You will turn this city upside down in my name, and no one will be able to stop it. By the way, can I just take a quick aside and say that I believe now more than ever that Jesus is saying something very similar to this movement called Mission Point. I am opening doors of unprecedented gospel impact in your time, in your county. The only question is, will you be willing to walk through them? I will turn this county upside down with my life and my love, but you all are the way that I will do that. Show and share my love to the hurting. Show and share my love to the hopeless and watch what I do. No power of hell, no scheme of man will be able to stop the transformation I bring about if you will step through the doors I'm opening before you. And if you've been around here, you know that there have been places where we've needed to heal and become healthy. There have been places where we've needed to experience rest and places where we've needed to grow in unity. But 2019, y'all, I'm just saying, if we walk through, he will break through. The Spirit has been whispering that to our team. We are on the edge, on the precipice, and looking forward to what he is going to do. And I just came to make a pre-announcement to you all and say, we as a church, we accept. We are all in on going all out 
for Jesus. I personally refuse to stare at open doors and then years from now talk about what could have been had we chosen to step through and do what it was he was calling us to do. But more on that next week. By the way, did I mention be here next week and the week after as we talk about what some of this looks like for us? Go to supermarket sweep. I'm like, Lord, would you maybe start dropping some hints of some of this this week? I don't know, but I am excited. Verse 9 says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. Okay, first of all, what an indictment on the religious elite. Jesus says, hey, that fancy building that you all got kicked out of, that's actually the synagogue of Satan. Jingle, jingle. I had my reasons. And those people who think they're my people, they're actually Satan's kids. These are strong words. And those people who've rejected you and they've called you spiritually inferior, I've rejected them. They call you traitors, but the bottom line is they are liars because it doesn't matter what else anyone does. If they reject Jesus as the key holder to eternity, they miss the whole point and are living a lie. And that's one of the reasons which, by the way, as a church, we will always preach the gospel starting in the church. Because we understand that 80-some percent of this country will say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with God, and I go to church, and others of us will say, yeah, but I, you know, I serve, and some of us will say, I'm a pastor, and this is such a reminder. All of that may be fine and good, but it's ultimately about what you say about the person of Jesus. Is he the only one who holds the key to eternity? Is he the only one who can bring about the forgiveness? of our souls. And for this movement in Philadelphia, that was their claim. And again, the majority of people, religious people, got it wrong because of what they said about Jesus. And then Jesus just goes savage on them. This is just so great. He says in the second part of verse 9, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. <laughs> this is so good. Um, I have a, a daughter who I'll leave nameless. Um, I love that now I have four daughters. I can say that and really mean it. Let me just say this. I'm not speaking about Jael, who's sitting in the room um, on her 13th birthday. Happy birthday, Jael. Um, anyway... So it's not her. So let me say uh, there are three other girls to choose from. But one of them is uniquely allergic to apologizing. It's very, very, very funny. Um, and I am that dad who's like, no, I'm going to make you apologize. Um, and so a situation might arise and um, something happens. It's always over the dumbest stuff that happened at school. And she'll go after her sister and say something really mean and unkind. And I'm like... You need to say sorry to your sister. And at that point, you can see it. Like the jaw clenches. 
little steam starts to emerge from the general ear region. And you can just see that look on the face that says like, but I'm not sorry. And I'm the dad who's like, eh, but I don't care. See, because um, I don't need you to feel sorry. I just want you to say sorry. Apologize. Say it. Matter of fact, your sister loves hugs. So I want you to hug her and count to 10 out loud. No, dad. Yes, this is happening. And then the reluctant embrace will happen. <laughs> and you've never heard a child count this fast. One, two, three, four, five, And then at the end of this, I'm like, now say it. Oh. Okay. I'm sorry. And you can run faster than that really fast kid at school. Because that's what the fight was about the whole time. Oh, I'm like, that's fantastic. Now tell her she's awesome. You're awesome. I don't need it. Thank you. And the end of the story. Um, so anyway, all that to say, when my daughter grows up and she hates hugs and general human affection, you will, you will understand why. It is my bad parenting. But in my defense, I'm just trying to be like Jesus. Um, because did you see, seriously, I mean, did you see, did you see what Jesus did? This is really, really awesome. Jesus says, hey, just so you know, those phony Jews who kicked you out of their fancy building and hurled insults at you and accused you falsely, those people who've rejected you, those people who've wounded you, those people who've come at you, I'm going to make them come and bow down at your feet and say it. But we're not sorry. I don't care. You're going to say this. Say it. Go. You are the real. We are the fake. Thank you. Say the other thing. Ah! Jesus loves you. This we know. For, well, he just told us so. There is a great. Now hug their feet. Right? I mean, this is this powerful scene. Here, this is awesome. This is, by the way, why you cannot get into a hurling battle with people tossing insults back and forth. Well, they insulted me, so I went back at them, and then I got on social media, and I said this mean thing about them because they say ridiculous stuff. Like, no, 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 no. You do the faithful, he'll do the fighting. He is taking names, and he will be kicking butts. That's the reminder when you read what Jesus does in terms of his justice. He will balance the scales. He will make them sorry in his time. And for some of us, by the way, that doesn't mean much. But for some of us, it may bring a tear to our eye that he has not gone unaware of everything that's been said about you. And he is going to deal with it in his time. This, by the way, is also a reminder for us not to ever get to the place where we become those religious elite and we become snooty and judgy. Because if we're not careful, let me just say this, we might end up being those people at the feet of other people. And Jesus is saying, say it. Because all those years, y'all acted like you had the key, and you decided who was in, and you decided who was out. Say it. Jesus loved you and journeyed with you even while you struggled with that issue. Thank you. Now hug their feet. We have to be incredibly careful that we remember we are not the key holders. He is the key holder. Now we still have to look at what he says and how he says it, but when it's all said and done, this is also a cautionary tale for some of us. But 
there is another possible interpretation of what Jesus is saying here. I am about to open a door of unprecedented gospel impact. I'm about to open a door of opportunity for you. And the very people who rejected the gospel will come and fall at your feet in repentance. They will acknowledge my Love. I wonder if Jesus isn't just speaking about vindication, but he's speaking about restoration. I am about to do something that will make the most resistant people in your lives repentant. Now, can I just be honest and say, as I was processing this, I became very aware of the fact, thank you, Holy Spirit, that I so totally preferred the first version, not the second one so much. I was really super thrilled with, yeah, get them, Jesus. Make them come and apologize. I was so ready and excited about the vindication of everyone who's wounded me and everyone who's gotten away with what seems like injustice and everyone who's said things falsely. I'm like, yes, Jesus, deal with them. And yet there's a possible interpretation that's beautiful for the people of God to embrace. Because I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus would say that to his followers and say, I want you to be more obsessed with their restoration than, their vind than your vindication. I want it to matter infinitely more to you that they fall at my feet in repentance, then they fall at yours with regret. I want it to matter so much less to you that they pay for the hate that they expressed and that they experience my love. I want it to matter more to you, not that I pay them back, but that I pay for their sin. And I'm opening a door for you. And listen, the Lord, I believe, even for our church, is going to open doors for us to have unprecedented gospel impact. And when we think about that, we tend to think about the pretty things and the easy things. But that might mean going into places where we say the person I've lived the last 10 years waiting for their demise is the person Jesus might be saying, watch what I do to restore them. And watch what I do to restore your dad who left. And watch what I do to bring revival in the city with people who have rejected the church and called it irrelevant. Watch what I do with the kids at your school who say God is stupid. Watch what I do with the very people who rejected my gospel. I'm opening a door. And I'm praying, Spirit of the living God, would you make me more excited about restoration in our time? than about vindication in yours.
do something awesome among us. I wonder if this is not what Jesus is speaking to this movement of people. In which case, ask me how much I'm looking forward to 2019. How much I'm hopeful that Jesus will bring awakening to the souls of those who've been most distant and most resistant. And to that person who is like, you look at him like, there's no way. They hate Jesus. Jesus, watch what I do. Jingle, jingle. Your stubborn grandpa's heart, I have the keys. Watch what I do. If you walk through these doors. And then Jesus gives them a bunch of beautiful promises about their future. Verse 10. says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently under fire, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. The hour of trial um, Jesus is speaking of is what's often referred to as the tribulation. It's a a seven-year period um, before the return of Jesus Christ of, um, man, unmatched pain and suffering on earth. And I don't mean to be indelicate or insensitive, but slavery and the Holocaust and the world wars we've experienced will fade in comparison to this seven-year window that is coming in the future. This is when the Antichrist will burst on the scene and he will go after the church. And um, Jesus, you know, says, if I had not cut those days short, the entire world would be wiped out. But to the Philadelphians, Jesus promises, I will keep you from that experience. Another tricky phrase, um, but three possible interpretations. Um, Interpretation number one is that Jesus is telling the Philadelphians that I will preserve you through the experience. Meaning, I will keep you faithful to my name even under the most intense of pressures. Uh, The second interpretation is Jesus is saying, I will protect you in that experience. Meaning, somehow I'll miraculously shield you from experiencing some of the worst of the pain of that season. Um, The third uh, possible interpretation is Jesus is saying, I will prevent you from the experience altogether. I will somehow bring you home so you don't have to walk through it. Um, I personally lean in the direction of the third interpretation um, with every right to change my mind as uh, you pray for me and speak, speak wisdom. Um, again, this idea of Jesus preserving the Philadelphian church through the experience, that's, that's possible. But my struggle with it is Jesus is promising rewards to a movement of people who have faithfully endured pressure. They faithfully endured the fire. So I just struggle with Jesus saying, hey, because y'all have endured the fire, I'm going to keep you strong in the fire, Right? I feel like, no, this is, the the promise is probably a little bit different 
than that. And the idea that I will protect you during the experience, um, I think makes sense because you've been faithful um, in this era in which you've experienced um, trial and pressure. I will keep you from the effects of pain and their harm on you. My tension with this is still the language. He says, I will keep you from the hour. I'll keep you from that season, not in that season, which makes me wonder if Jesus isn't saying, no, I'll prevent you from the experience altogether. Um, and this makes sense to me because the primary purpose of the tribulation is it's a purifying, it's a trial. And he says that even in this section of scripture. See, because right now, again, there's a whole majority of us in this country who say, we're in with God and we're cool with Jesus. And Jesus says, it's going to be a season of trial. And when the heat turns up, my question is going to be, how many people will still stand on my name? How many people stay, still say, I'm all in, as things get more and more and more difficult? And what you're going to start to see is it's going to purify and it's going to bring about who are my true followers. The thing is, the Philadelphian church has already been through the fire, and they've already passed the test, which is what makes me think Jesus is saying, because you've passed the test, and you've gone through the fire, and you've been faithful, ah, I'm going to let you clip out of the final. And also, this keeps them from the hour. Um, now, let me say... Um, I am not making a, a statement about the rapture. I personally don't think this has to do with the rapture. Some people do. I don't. And the reason is because when Jesus is speaking about this exemption, he's speaking to the faithful. He's not speaking to the entire church. The rapture, however, is for the whole church. Whatever Jesus is speaking about seems to be for the faithful. And again, can we also just agree that the fact that this doesn't apply directly in its fulfillment to the Philadelphian church because they are all dead. They don't have to worry about the tribulation. Right? So this must be speaking to the Philadelphian faithful, those who are willing to walk through difficult things for the sake of Jesus. I wonder if there isn't still a fulfillment for those in the world, in Africa and in Asia, who are willing to walk through fire for the sake of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, I will miraculously prevent you from experiencing any of that. How he's going to do that, I don't know. I love being able to say, I don't know. Here's the thing. Whatever Jesus meant by this, I trust our response. What revelation would require of us is that we would say, whatever this is, I want in on it. Whatever this is, I want in on it. If this means that Jesus is going to preserve us through the trials, I want that. I want to know that he will empower me to stay faithful regardless of the pressure. I want in on that. And if Jesus is, is going to somehow protect me from being singed and no hair on my arm is going to be burnt in the fire, I want in on that. And if you're telling me that Jesus is going to somehow send a secret op evacuation to get us out of here, I want in on that as well. I think sometimes we get tripped up on, did he mean this or did he mean that or did he mean the other? Let's scrap that for a second and just say, let's be faithful and find out. I don't know, but I want to find out. 
And the way we find out is, can we stand with Jesus now? Can we walk with Jesus now? Can we say, regardless of who thinks what of me and puts pressure on me, give me the grace now to be faithful to you so that I can find out firsthand what all of this means. And then Jesus says, verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. By the way, in a couple of weeks, we'll maybe talk a little bit more about this. And all of my life, how I believe that Jesus is, is, is you know, the, he's just going to give out crowns. Like he's going to stand at the door of heaven and just give out crowns like Oprah. You know, you get a crown and, and you get a crown and, and also you get a crown. False. No, no. Only the faithful will get the crown. Some of us will be lucky, let's be honest, to get a participation ribbon. Um, and Jesus is saying, hey, don't quit now, because some of you will be on your way to grab the crown, and like the hair in the story, you're going to relax, you're going to chill, you're going to get distracted, you're going to get obsessed with earthly things, and someone else running after me is going to come snatch your crown. Don't be that person. Run with a faithfulness that wants to win and run with a faithfulness that wants to get the prize. And by the way, in a city that was acquainted with festivals and games, this would have resonated with them. And then Jesus gives a few more promises to the faithful. And team, you guys can come on out as we close. But this is awesome. Verse 12, Jesus says, The one who is victorious continues to be faithful to the end. I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. What? Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Wow. Now, in this context, they would have understood that when the emperor's reign was over, um, in the imperial temple, there would be um, this pillar, a statue, shaped like the emperor that was built. And on that statue, um, in his image, uh, it would have inscribed on it the emperor's name. It would have inscribed on it the emperor's city of birth. And it would have inscribed on it um, whatever god that emperor ascribed to. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you stay faithful to me, I am going to make you an architectural fixture in the eternal city. I am going to give you a permanent place of prominence. And by the way, the language used for this pillar would have resonated with them because they lived on a fault. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. No earthquakes will shake this city. This temple is never coming down. This city is never coming to the ground. I am going to make you a fixture in my... You won't just be in heaven. You'll be a part of heaven somehow. I don't know what that means, but I want to find out. And then he says, and I'm going to start to, to, to write all kinds of things on you. I'll write the name of the city on you. Because you won't just be a citizen of this city, you will be a shareholder in this city. And then he says, I'm going to write the name of God on you, and I'm going to write my new name, which right now you're not enlightened enough to understand, but then you will be, and I'm going to write my name on you. And I love the picture Jesus is painting, because back at school when all the kids mocked you and asked you, do you stand with Jesus? And you said, yes, I stand with Jesus. Jesus says, you weren't ashamed of my name down there. I'm going to put my name on you forever and ever and ever. And everyone who looks at you will say, ooh, Jesus is proud to be associated with him, that he wrote his name on him forever. 
I'm just telling you tattoos will be all the rage in heaven and you will want one. This is such a beautiful picture of Jesus saying right here you are irrelevant and you're insignificant and no one cares who you are. But let me tell you about the eternal status I'm preparing for you because of your faithfulness. Now, I don't understand how we're going to be architectural fixtures because of our faithfulness. I don't understand all of that. But can I say it again? Let's not worry about trying to figure it out as much as hearing what the Spirit of God is saying, which is be faithful and find out. Be faithful and find out. And for some of us, I do, I think the church, we are so prone to, to say, what's culture doing? And what's this person saying? And can I get this person's approval? And can I live for this person's affirmation? And Jesus is saying, listen, this temporary thing that you're living for will not matter when it's all. It won't matter, by the way, when the trial period comes, let alone when you stand before me and I start to speak over you what I say about you. And when I establish you for eternity, then you will know what really matters. And I, I pray that the Spirit will do something that awakens us to what matters now. And that will be a movement that says we want to be faithful so we can find out. We want to be faithful. We don't know what He's going to do as we walk through the doors of mission in the coming year. But we want to be faithful and we want to find out. And so Lord, even now as we sit in this space, we just pray that you would do something that raises our view of Jesus. That we would see him for who he is. That we would be willing to stand for him. That we would be willing to speak of him. That we would be willing to show who he is, share who he is. Because he's become so worthy to us. I pray, Lord, that you would remove every obstacle and all of the things that are drawing our attention away from running and finishing well. And I pray that we would walk through every open door to carry your love and to offer forgiveness. Do something amazing in our time. And the first thing we long to see is make us a movement of the faithful. Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray. Amen.